Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Speaking of show, it can't happen without support, and one of the best ways to support the show is to pick up some of our customizable merch. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com and click on apparel or navigate to the show notes of your favorite podcast episode. All of the links are there. All of our merch is customizable, and so you can find a style that works for you. But today we are revisiting a conversation I had with Dr. Rob Raguso back in 2018. And for Dr. Raguso, the phrase stop and smell the roses takes on a whole new meaning. He studies the intricate world of floral chemistry. And it's amazing to think of all of the different substances that go into producing floral scents and the ways they interact with the natural world to ensure pollination is achieved. Once again, this conversation happened back in 2018. So if you're noticing a difference in audio quality, that's why. I wasn't working with good gear back then. So please, you don't need to email me about it. But I don't want to keep you from it any longer. This is a fascinating discussion. So without further ado, let's revisit my conversation with Dr. Robert Gusso. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Rob Raguso, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Hi, Matt, and thanks for having me. I am a professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell, but I really could be in a lot of different departments <laughs> because I live in that wonderful, diverse, sweet spot between insects and plants and how they interact with each other in hyper-diverse ways in evolutionary and ecological time. So, what does that mean? I'm interested in how animals and plants, how insects and plants diversify and how they diversify in, in the way they interact with each other. I've been focusing on pollination largely in my career, but I didn't start out that way. I was a butterfly collector as a kid and as an as a undergraduate at Yale, I worked with a, a wonderful guy named Charles Remington, who was kind of my, my first mentor and godlike figure in butterfly <laughs> biology, and sort of at the end of his career. So he was probably you know my grandfather's age. But it was always about diversity. You know, Charles was a, a very broad biologist, and he challenged me to get interested in chemistry as a, a driver of interactions, you know, of, of how do butterflies choose their host plants? How do caterpillars decide what they can eat? Why did Ehrlich and Raven, the year before I was born, in 1964, you know, write this landmark paper about coevolution and, and sort of make this incredible connection between whole lineages of animals uh, like swallowtail butterflies you know, whose caterpillars really kind of limit themselves to specific lineages of, of trees like uh, or plants, like citrus plants or, or the carrot family. Yeah. And so even though I wasn't that interested in chemistry uh, or wasn't that good at it as an <laughs> undergraduate, I realized that I, if I wanted to learn something fundamentally new, I needed to uh, study chemistry. And, and so as a grad student, I switched from butterflies to, to plant physiology and genetics and I wanted to understand how do plants make novel chemicals as part of their phenotypes? How do they smell different? How do they taste different? How do they protect themselves against enemies using chemistry? Do they enter into these runaway arms races, as my predecessors you know, <laughs> in chemical ecology have studied? And, and I've never looked back, really. I, I, I enjoy food and, and cooking and, and smelling things. I have a pretty good sense of smell on it. So I think uh, it's it's somewhat organic and logical that I would end finding a huge gap in pollination biology in trying to understand how chemistry mediates the diverse ways that plants and pollinators get together. And that's been the major theme of my research career since grad school. Wow, fantastic. And it's exactly why we have you on the podcast today. And you've just given us so much to talk about. But one of the most interesting things about what you just said there is your trajectory through this really, I think, too many students are taught that you choose biology or you choose physics or you choose chemistry. But really, I mean, your career stands as proof that to really kind of make big strides and truly understand how these systems evolve, really, and, and why the world is the way we see it today, some of the best insights we can get are from combining those two uh, or at least multiple different fields of study into one that, that tells a better story. Yeah, that, I, I agree. And, and I, I have to say that I, I got really good advice as a student at different stages of my of my growth, um, you know, when I was a high school kid, I wrote to to Paul Ehrlich, who's a really famous guy, you know, at Stanford, writing books about 
population, you know, Malthusian explosions in <laughs> populations and, and things. But he, anyway, at heart, he, he began as a butterfly biologist. And he wrote back to me this wonderful letter saying, hey, you know, when I was a young guy in the 50s, it was one thing, you know, to, to, to sort of approach career as a career as a biologist by being focused on butterfly biology, et cetera. But, you know, the, the, the scientific world changes rapidly and you need if you're going to teach us new things about butterflies or other organisms, you're going to need to take novel approaches. And so I would encourage you, you know, this is a letter he wrote in like 1980 or so, you know, to learn more about computers and computer programming or about physics and chemistry, ways that we can ask novel questions about biological systems like like insects choosing their host plants. And so that was really great advice to tell a young kid. You know, when I decided to, to switch to plants in grad school, I, I chose to work with a, a plant molecular biologist at Michigan named Iran Petersky. And Iran wasn't that interested in butterflies or biodiversity. He was interested in the evolution of novel, of novelty, of novel phenotypes. He had studied gene duplication at Davis with Leslie Gottlieb. And so he worked on Clarkia plants. And, you know, I'd lived in California for two years working at Stanford, but I didn't know what Clarkia plants were. <laughs> you know, I, I was still a butterfly biologist. And so through time spent with, with Iran and with my academic grandfather, Leslie Gottlieb, I just kind of focused on that system and realized, well, there's one species in that group that, that is strongly scented and has a long floral tube and is not pollinated by bees. And maybe if I want to understand novelty and chemistry, this might be a good system. Plants are annuals. I can make genetic crosses with them and their closest relatives and do, you know, and get fertile hybrids. Maybe this is, you know, a nice compromise between a tree and an Arabidopsis plant. <laughs> you know, I can I can do genetics, but the ecology is going to be interesting. Sure. And and so the important thing there is I needed to be open to novel inputs. You know that Mike Martin was the chemist on my committee who said to me, you know, don't cut corners. You've got to indenture yourself to analytical chemistry and learn how to analyze your own floral volatiles and not farm that out as a as a collaboration with somebody. And likewise, as a postdoc, I went back to butterflies and moths, but I did it from a neurobiology and olfactory standpoint, working with John Hildebrand and Mark Willis at the University of Arizona, where they had a whole division of people studying the tobacco hornworm moth as a model system. But those were my pollinators, right? <laughs> I wanted to go out in the Sonoran Desert and study them visiting night-blooming flowers and then be able to come back in the lab and study them in the lab as naive animals fresh out of the pupa that hadn't learned anything yet. And thereby, I could understand how do they respond to odors? How do they learn about odors? You know, how important is it for their foraging biology, you know, to understand, like, why are they pollinators of certain kinds of plants? Those were questions that I kept getting in seminars at the end of my thesis, and I couldn't <laughs> answer. And so I think to, to really come back to your question, you know, you can't, it's good to be a planner as a scientist, you have to be organized, but you also have to be open to serendipity. And there are so many times in my career when the system I was studying or the question I was studying was knocking me over the head saying, you're doing this wrong, <laughs> right? There's a better way to do this, but, but you have to be open to changing the way you think. And I think maybe that's how science is different from politics, that, that you know, we, we end up being, <laughs> we have to be persuaded by the, most, the, the highest quality results and data, and we have to be willing to support the best data out there, regardless of how we feel about it emotionally. Sure. And so... So, you know, those were great lessons for me between my 20s and my 30s, and I feel fortunate that I had a diversity of good mentors. You know, they weren't they weren't very much like each other, but they all had good advice for me, and and I was uh, fortunate. Fortunately for me, I listened to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's half the battle, right? But you know, yeah. at the core of all of this really is this idea that th there's chemistry there, and it's shaping the way that these organisms both evolve by themselves and then in unison with other organisms, and. Everyone that I know that has a sense of smell and can detect scent has appreciated floral odors to one degree or another, and we all appreciate seeing a moth or a butterfly visit a flower, but the real connection there is really that these, these organisms, these butterflies and moths, are sensing some sort of volatile compound whether we can detect it or not, and that's really what's at the center of that. So even if you can't detect it, or even if you can detect it, where do you start with a system in trying to understand how these, these floral scents interplay with pollination biology and vice versa. Yeah, that's a great lead-in. Way back in the ethology and psychology literature, there's this concept of umwelt, the idea of the inner, in, the inner sensory life of any organism, and, the, and this possibility of not being like yours. <laughs> you know, so any sensory biologist 
one of the first propositions that they need to accept is that they, they might be studying something that they can't empathize with, with their own senses. Uh, if you study insect pheromones, for example, only on rare occasions can you smell them. Mm. I mean, oftentimes they're, they are emitted or produced at such low concentrations or they're the kinds of compounds that we may not have receptors for. And so it's almost an act of trust that you have to say, okay, I, I can't empathize with this as a, as a mammal, as a sensory biologist. I can't smell it. I can't taste it. What I have to do is I have to use analytical chemistry uh, or genetics or some other unbiased form or less biased form of measurement to know what I've got. And so my first job, it took up a year of my time as a graduate student. This was not a linear experience at all. I had to learn how do you do this? How do you collect scent from a flower? How, and, and more importantly, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know when, when you've got it? Okay. Right. So, so I was literally whistling in the dark. I wasn't formally trained as a chemist. Not all the chemists I spoke to were that supportive of what I wanted to do. I read the literature to the extent that I could, and, and I found a couple of people whose names kept coming up. Heidi Dobson, who was the pioneer of studying the odor of pollen. You know, Ulla Pelmier, you know, who had done this beautiful thesis in Sweden and then moved to the United States to study yucca moths. And he'd done a lot of really good work on making connections between floral scent and different kinds of pollinators. Mark Witten, the University of Florida, who was a part of a, a really powerful group in the 80s who studied orchid bees and the orchids and other kinds of flowers that they pollinate. You know, and I wrote to these folks as a student and said, you know, help, I, I'm, I'm new to this. I've, you know, you guys are leaders in the liter literature. Your papers are clearly written, but I'm trying to do this with my own hands, and I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. And in their own ways, each of them reached out and helped me. You know, one case, Ula invited me to his Cincinnati, where he was living at the time. Uh, you know, Heidi gave me a lot of encouragement and sent me things to read. And Mark Witten was willing to run some samples on the mm -hmm. gas chromatograph mass spectrometer in Gainesville to confirm for me that I, I was getting what he was getting. And so that aha moment for me was we had at the University of Michigan, we, we had a botanist named Roger Keller who worked at the Mathai Botanical Gardens and was an orchid enthusiast. And he wrote to me one day and said, we have Stanhopia orchids blooming and they smell incredible. You probably want to collect their scent with your gizmo. <laughs> and I realized, oh, Mark Witten and Norris Williams had just written this set of beautiful papers on Stanhopia. If I get what they get, analyzing the chemicals my way, that would be independent confirmation that I'm not just getting some kind of biased subset of things. Mm. And because those are strongly scented orchids, I mean, this was a low-hanging fruit. <laughs> uh, so, But I'll never forget that moment where I watched the, chrom the chromatograph grow on, on the computer screen in front of me. And I, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning because I had to work at night, you know, the chemistry department in Michigan. And, and I emailed Mark the next day and I said, Mark, I get, <laughs> I've confirmed, you know, here I am, this, this, this wise-ass kid, right? <laughs> And I was like, I've confirmed your Stanhopia tigrina, you know. And so he, he was he was very patient with me, but I I felt great. I I, I you know romped around the diag in, in Ann Arbor in the middle of the night. I was so happy that I had taught myself how to do this. And then for the rest of my thesis, I was very focused on genetics. I didn't do a lot of comparative biology. But 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 when I moved to Arizona and I started working with Lucinda McDade, you know, who is a real leader in using phylogenetics to to track the evolution of plant traits and floral traits, you know, with rigorous statistical and, and, and inferential methods, you know, then I got to play. You know, Lucinda yeah. and I would, would, would go for field trips uh, with her students in the Sonoran Desert. And, you know, she's an amazing botanist uh, and, and mentor. And, and we would just brainstorm the whole time. Oh, geez, you know, what does that smell like? Why does it smell at night and not in the daytime? You know, I wonder if these are really similar. They smell similar to our noses, but we could be missing something. And I started to create for myself a library. And it wasn't just flowers, it's, you know, it was food. There, there's, there's, the, there's incredible journals out there in the Journal of, Agri of Agricultural and Food Chemistry, the Journal of Essential Oil Research, the Fragrance and Flavor Journal, where we're really, you know, crackerjack chemists, excellent <laughs> chemists, are, are analyzing, like, what's the difference between cardamom oil in France versus Italy? It almost sounds like a Monty Python skit. Um, <laughs> But they're really good chemists and they're just being comparative because the food industry, you know, sometimes places a lot of value on, you know, an odorant from Provence, but not from Bulgaria or vice versa. Uh, the, you know, the roses from Bulgaria are really, really valued. And it's all about terroir, you know, like how does the climate and the soil not only impact wine, 
but also in the volatiles that plants produce. So I would say that it took me four or five years of playing, you know, of, of just liberally reading as broadly as I could in the literature, talking to chemists whenever they would talk to me, uh, reaching out to my colleagues around the world, and then and just running samples, running extracts from food, from fruits, from flowers, from coconuts, from you know, anything that I, I wanted to paint for myself to, to, to fill in the gaps. When something smells like this to me, what's the chemical that makes it smell that way? And I think this really helped me to ask questions much more broadly and to, and to train my students to not, be, to not be narrow scholars. Yeah. And that's so important, especially because in the midst of it, it's so easy to feel myopic and go, well, I don't have time to hit all this other unrelated literature. I mean, let alone literature within your same field. But it sounds to me like this kind of exploratory science, the sense of discovery and just almost childlike wonder with the diversity of this new field opened the door to asking bigger questions about the biology and the ecology and the evolution, again, of these these organisms that interact at, at very different scales. Definitely, definitely. And I think at that point, I learned a lot from other scientists. You know, that E.O. Wilson once wrote that some people make themselves or choose to become biologists as a way of being successful. You know, that, that biology is, is the field in which they can be competitive. And other people make themselves successful so they can continue <laughs> to enjoy being biologists. And, you know, I was very much the latter. Um, I didn't enter science because I thought this is a field in which I can compete. I was just born with this love of natural history and discovery, and I had to learn along the way, well, how do I get a job? How do I get grants? How do I publish my work to the right audience? How do I take peer-reviewed criticism constructively and learn from it? You know, how do I hold myself accountable for the shortcomings of my work? And, you know, just as I was be beginning to be a young professor and, and you know, start a family and teach classes, and, and I was I would have been happy to continue studying night blooming flowers forever. You know, hawk moths are fascinating animals. The, the selective pressures that lead to the evolution of jasmines and jonquils and gardenias around the world is something that's inherently, you know, interesting. But this was happening at a time when pollination biology was going through a revolution that took two forms. You know, one was specialist versus generalist debates where, you know, here I was painting myself into a corner with specialized orchids and specialized night blooming flowers and obligate mutualists like yuccas and figs. And the rest of the pollination world was running in the opposite direction, saying, oh, isn't it interesting that thistles feed 45 species of birds, <laughs> bees, and butterflies? You know, isn't that an interesting anti-syndrome syndrome? You know, maybe we've <laughs> been oversimplifying the pollination world, and maybe we should pay more attention to generalization. And I fought that at first because I, because out of defensiveness, I thought, oh, crap, you know, I, I love what I'm doing. Why are you guys, you know, <laughs> why is my study system suddenly some kind of outlier that doesn't, that doesn't generally explain anything? But I read the books and, and papers, uh, you know, Nick Wasser wrote some really highly influential and provocative papers with his colleagues, with Mary Price and, and Jeff Allerton and those guys. And, and I engaged with them, you know, I, I know Nick and Mary and they're great colleagues. And I just started reading more about, well, uh, when are they wrong and when are they right? And what if generalized flowers are using chemistry just like specialized ones are? Nobody would know that uh, because most of the studies of floral scent have been done on these really unusual flowers that mimic carrion or feces or flowers that are, that are doing sexual deception. And so I'm really grateful in retrospect that as a young scientist, when I would have been happy to, to crank on what I was doing, I had to refocus on addressing the larger questions in my field. I, had, I was challenged in the grant review process and the, and the peer review process to, to address those larger questions. And so through my students, and through collaborations with my colleagues, we started to work on more generalized systems, strawberry flowers with TLN Ashman and thistle flowers, you know, with Nina Tice and Manuel Lairdow, polymonium flowers with Candy Galen. These were some of my heroes and colleagues, and, and I didn't intend to, <laughs> to study floral scent with them, yeah. but it, it was a great opportunity for us to say, okay, get rid of, you know, the orchid bees and the hawk moths and, and, and study the plants and pollinators that most people are studying or think of as more mainstream, you know, nectar and pollen offering plants and ask, does floral scent play a role in this? I mean, Heidi Dobson, in fairness, had done this, studying the odors of pollens in buttercups and in anemones and in roses. But I think it was, uh, it was really rewarding for me to kind of dig into that question and say, hey, look at this, you know, depending on the different scales at which pollinators find flowers, their interactions are sensory. 
and they're multimodal, often it's more than just color or just shape or just odor or even just density, hmm. but it's actually the combination of those things. Um, so I don't know if you know this. I'm really proud to, to actually tell you this. Just today, we published a paper in Nature Communications oh. by uh, the lead author is Aphrodite Kansa, who is a wonderful grad student uh, working with Theodora Patanidou at the University of the Aegean in Greece. And part of Aphrodite's thesis was to study this natural community of largely but not fully um, bee-pollinated plants in the Fragana, which is a kind of evergreen shrub community in the Mediterranean. And so Theodora had worked on this community for most of her career, and she's a sort of globally respected pollination ecologist, bee ecologist, amazing natural historian, as well as physiologist. She's done some great stuff with amino acids and salts and, hmm. and, 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 and bee function. But the study was actually a collaborative study across the board. You know, we worked with Jens Olsen, who is a leader of this field of um, plant pollinator network studies, kind of social networks of plants and pollinators in communities. You know, Adrian Dyer, who's a colleague of ours from Australia, who's an expert on bee vision, you know, the sort of the, the psychophysics of, of color vision, mm. and, and not just in bees, but in other kinds of, of animals that visit flowers as well. So we had been kind of advisors to Aphrodite in her and her thesis. And, you know, we discovered something really outrageous, that when you do a, an unbiased analysis, when you basically take a plant pollinator network, and I, and I hope you know what I mean by that, it, you, you know, you have 41 species of flowering plants and over 200 species of insects that are visiting them, and you make a web between them. Huh. And, and so you have all these links that connect them, and the links are nested within each other. So there might be a plant like uh, wild lavender or a uh, rock rose, uh, cystus, which bloom for many months and they feed everybody. You know, they, they, they have links to, you know, three quarters of the insects in that community. They're kind of uh, cornucopian resources and they're purple in color and they smell like, la they smell like lavender. They smell <laughs> like uh, patchouli or lavender. And so they have this important role in the network because they're feeding all these bees pollen and nectar. They're, they're subsidizing the pollinators of other more rare plants. Oh. So if I had still been studying night blooming flowers and hawk moths, I wouldn't have even been thinking about this. But you know, the thing that, that Aphrodite thought was so interesting was that there was this non-random correlation between flowers that are purple and smelling like lavender, that, that chemically, that's a really distinctive class that can't be confused huh. for anything else. We, we sort of said to each other as scientists, don't trust your senses. We all smell differently. Culturally, you know, I'm Italian-American, she's Greek, Adrian's Australian, Jens is Danish. You know, we smell different things in our food and in and, and our sure. culture. And, and so let's collect the data and let's use statistics to pull out what are the phylogenetic relationships in this community. You know, a lot of them are mints, you know, so there's, it's not like they're all independent. Yeah. Some of our sunflowers are mints. Let's measure spectral reflectance for the flowers instead of saying, well, that one's pink and that one's yellow. Let's collect the spectral reflectance curves and then let's express the differences in their reflectance intensity and wavelengths as they would be perceived by in trichromatic bee visual space. And so there are geometric models that you can use to say, how would a bee see a yellow flower with an ultraviolet reflectance versus one wow. that right, that didn't have ultraviolet. And then uh, Aphrodite did other things like saying, well, look, in plant herbivore ecology, Paul Feeney came up with this idea of, you know, 40 years ago about apparency, that if you're a tree that you live for a long time, you're, you know, you're rooted to the ground and you're, and you're stuck there and, and, and your enemies can find you, right? You're apparent. Right. And so there are certain strategies that are befitting or more appropriate for an apparent plant, certain ways you defend yourself or tolerate, you know, abuse. Whereas if you're an herb, if you're short-lived, if you're an annual, you're not woody, you germinate after fires or after, you know, monsoon rains, you get up and bloom in three months and then you get all your seeds back into the soil and off you go, you know, senescence and death. Those are not apparent, right? Those are, those are plants that are unpredictable in time yeah, and space. kind of snapshots. Exactly. And so what Aphrodite did is, is she applied that apparency idea to patches of flowers and saying, okay... Ooh. Starting in February and ending in June, who blooms for how long? How much space do they do their blooms cover in terms of a kind of visual display of density, as well as height above the ground? These are things that, independent of color or scent, might be important to bees or other pollinators. Certainly, optimal foraging theory suggests that they should care about that. And then she sort of designed these nuanced statistical analyses to ask what model, what combination of all these traits best predicts 
visitation by bees or beetles or butterflies, etc. And then we fell off our chairs because we, <laughs> you know, because we collectively realized, oh wow, not only is there this non-random statistical correlation between color and scent across the 41 species, there are these seven modules of color-scent combinations that huh. are remarkable that you couldn't make this up. But bees and beetles care about them. Um, wow. That they're highly predictive of what they're going to visit. And then when you put them in the same models with their apparency, you know, the size of the patch and the height above the ground and the color intensity as perceived by bees or by birds or whatever, different combinations of those factors come out. And so I'm so proud of this work and so honored to have been able to, to, to be a part of their team. Uh, in large part because I guess my pet peeve over the years has been as paper after paper have been published about plant pollinator networks – the chemistry is often omitted. So I've given talks, Matt, where I've, de <laughs> I've described floral scent as the dark matter of pollination. I love that. And, and what I mean by that is of it's, it's what you leave out of the model that is potentially explaining the, the <laughs> error, <laughs> the, the, the error in your understanding of the universe. Right. And, you know, when, when you read papers on plant pollinator networks or on path analyses, uh, or, or phenotypic selection studies where people are asking what traits in the flower are positively correlated with seed production or with, with male siring success for pollen export. Those studies are only as good as what you include in the model by measuring them. And so the challenge that I kind of issued to my colleagues a decade ago was, what if you included chemistry? <laughs> I mean, worst case scenario is it doesn't matter and you reject it yeah. and you guys win. Um, <laughs> but, what if you, but, but what if you included it and it matters? Then you don't have to say that the results were stochastic or that the results were idiosyncratic. You can say, hey, you know what? Scent chemistry or, or surface uh, waxiness or, or nectar chemistry doesn't matter for beetles, but it matters a lot for bees. And here's the model output that shows that. So uh, I feel I feel grateful actually for the challenge. It's scientifically very satisfying to test people's assumptions and to do the right kind of study and to remove yourself from the process too. You know, we we made a point of analyzing these data double blind. Wow. Um, so and I try to do that a lot in my lab. I think it's a great teaching point for students to say to them, look, you know, nobody's unbiased. We all have, especially when you've invested as much as a principal investigator does to get a grant, you want your grant <laughs> to work. You want your study to work. You want to be vindicated. And that's a danger flag, right? That's a point where as a scientist, yes. you need to step back and say, no, I want to make a team and I want the people who collect the data to be different from the people who analyze the data. And then once the data are collected and analyzed, I want to sit down with everybody and decode what they are. And then I'll ask my colleagues to run the statistical test. And then if everything fits, and, and then we can interpret the data with the confidence that we didn't cook the books, that we didn't somehow <laughs> misscore, you know, we didn't somehow didn't misscore data because of unconscious bias. Yeah. So that's why this is so satisfying for me that I feel it's not like it's not about being vindicated. I would have been perfectly satisfied if the Mediterranean pollinator web is all driven by color. Um, <laughs> as, as long as as long as we tested alternative hypotheses and falsified them, that matters more to me than than having sent explain things. So I wanted to mention that study to you because it's just hot off the presses. Yeah, I mean, congrats. That is so exciting. I mean, just to have that kind of like you said, that validation of of long handling beliefs, but also just the process. Like you said, it was collaborative. You did this where you weren't biasing the results in any way, and then to find such clear, concise results that paint a picture of something that's been largely ignored, That's that's got to give you the goosebumps moment. Like you said, you fell out of your chair. No, we, we did. We did. Not all scientists are kind and generous, <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of competition out there. But um, I think in my field, largely, you know, people are willing to talk to each other and you know, I, I think this study emerged from a willingness to open ourselves to alternative hypotheses and to use more tools than most studies incorporate. Yeah. So it's, it's very, it's very exciting. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great. So, okay. I mean, at the heart of this, it's, it's saying that chemistry is making a big difference in the evolution and, and stability and, and adaptability and fitness of these plant species through time, because these compounds aren't being made at random. They're being made and they're, they're serving a purpose within the flower. At least they're increasing the fitness by attracting certain sets of pollinators and, and, and incorporating, you know, even maintaining fitness and, and diversity among pollinators in this in a larger system. But 
is it kind of like there's different tools for every plant species or clade that you encounter or are plants basically using the same forms of chemistry over and over again in unique ways? Like maybe this is a certain class of compounds like coumarins and you tweak one functional component of that molecule and you get a new scent and therefore a new pollinator or is it entirely different or hodgepodge of different strategies across the board? Yeah, that's an awesome question, Matt. That's a very prescient question. I, I can give you a, a few different flavors of an answer. Um, one of the great benefits that I have from working at Cornell in, in a neurobiology and behavior department is that you know I came here 10 years ago and it kind of exploded my brain in, in terms of a new literature. I, I had really focused on plant physiology, animal olfaction, pollination ecology, and coming here really demanded that I expand my scholarship to study signal evolution. And so in, in behavioral ecology, there's a very deep literature that's rooted in part from, from sexual selection and, and social biology, social evolution that has to do with the honesty and dishonesty of signals and cues. Where do they come from and how are they used? And your question really could be rephrased as, do floral signals get reinvented in different lineages? Or is there a common language, is there a lingua franca out there of chemistry mm. that, that more or less all flowers use and that generalized pollinators like honeybees you know, can, can utilize anywhere on the planet given their spread with humans? And so uh, there's a couple of parts to that answer. The first part is this very strong phylogenetic pattern in floral biology okay. and floral evolution. So one hyperdiverse family uh, the Gesneriaceae, okay, the African violets. You know, besides Syningia and, and a few other, or, you know, orchid bee pollinated lineages, almost all of, of the diversity of that remarkable family is texture and color and flower shape. Oh. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to think of that many examples of uh, Gesners that are scented. Huh. Uh, and so that's a lineage that has gone in, you know, in a different direction. I would say that bromeliads are similar, you know, that, that, that some puyas are scented and some tillandsias are scented, but, but largely bromeliads are big, waxy, and saturated colors, and they're not okay. using chemistry very much. There's other lineages like mints and sunflowers where uh, they're all scented. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, even the little self-pollinating you know, weeds, are, 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 they can't help themselves, right? <laughs> uh, but the plants are covered with glandular trichomes. It may not even be flower scent. It's sort of all whole plant scent. Okay. Um, but uh, so those are extreme examples. To come back to the, the signal evolution issue, when we teach animal behavior here at Cornell, we often talk about things like conventional signals. So a good example of a conventional signal that I give in my talks is uh, a Coca-Cola can. That the red color with the white swoosh is, thanks to relentless and very effective marketing, is, is, is recognized almost everywhere in the world or at least the developed world, as an indicator of, of a product, a product that everyone's familiar with, you know, a, mm. a, a caramel-colored, carbonated sweet beverage. So it doesn't matter <laughs> if, you know, the, the script, I have got a collection of Coca-Cola cans from around the world and written in Cyrillic and in Hebrew <laughs> and Thai and, you know, and Japanese kanji, et cetera. But it's Coca-Cola yeah. everywhere. And so that's a conventional signal that, that through marketing and through learning, and we've, we've all basically agreed that the red color with the white swoosh you know, is an indicator of Coca-Cola. But that says nothing about the beverage, right? Mm. That the beverage itself isn't red. Right. You know, the word Coca-Cola used to mean something, you know, given the kind of ingredients that used to be in Coca-Cola, <laughs> but, right? but they're not anymore. Right. And so now it's just associative learning. It's Pavlovian marketing, essentially. So that's one extreme. And there's a lot of flowers in the world that are using conventional signals, colors that stand out against green foliage for animals that have trichromatic vision like bees and, and, uh, and moths. Blues and yellows are very easy for, for bees to resolve contrast against, uh, against green and ultraviolet, uh, which is most, most of the foliage that, that, that they are contrasted with in nature. And so it might be easier for them to be attracted to them and to, to learn them. That can be, you know, a little complicated because a lot of animals have innate blue preferences, but they can learn not to go to blue flowers. Okay. Um, shown again and again with bumblebees and honeybees and, and, and moths and butterflies, etc. But the opposite extreme is something called an index signal or, an inde or even an index cue. And what I mean by that is uh, something that can't be faked. Okay. So if we were to talk about birds, an excellent example of uh, an index might be the redness of a cardinal bird or a, a purple finch, uh, right? That, that has been shown to be, you know, directly related. This was sort of the origins of the Hamilton-Zook hypothesis that, that the brightness or the fullness of your sexual display is a, a, an honest indicator, an unfakeable indicator of 
your health and the, your quality, either genetic or immune or, or your parasite loads, your internal or your external parasite loads. Okay, and there's lots and lots of studies on guppies and peacocks and pigeons and turkeys showing these kinds of things. That, that and, and so there's strong selective pressure on female turkeys to choose male turkeys that have this like snood thing on their on their <laughs> on their head that we disgusting but is directly related to its coccidial loads you know for parasites so right. in a flower you know you could ask yourself what's an index what's an index cue of a flower it would be an odor or a color that has some kind of direct indicator of the quality of the reward or the nectar. And so there was this uh, wonderful study led by a, a colleague of mine, Stefan Dertel in, in, in um, Austria, and his students who've long been interested in orchids and other flowers, snapdragon-type flowers in South Africa that are pollinated by oil-collecting bees. So these are bees that, that, that specifically the females collect oils from flowers. And this is true all over the world. There are European oil flowers. There's Argentinian oil flowers. This is a kind of global phenomenon mm. where bees collect oils, which are very, very rich in energy content. And they provision those oils to their young, just as most bees provision pollen balls, uh, you know, mm. and, and sugar to their, to their grubs. Um, what uh, Irmgard Schaffler, who was the, the lead student uh, in uh, on this, on this um, study, what she found was after, after, painstaking work was that the odors being made by most oil-bearing flowers around the world were these diacetyl odors were were actually related chemically to the oils huh. that they were making so like that's an index right that you yeah. can't fake you can, or or it would be very expensive to fake that so certainly there could be a mimic out there there could be a flower that doesn't make oils but makes the the diacetyl but that's kind of a stretch um in most cases what if you make the oil you kind of have to make this odor. And so before landing and probing and wasting time in, the, in a flower that might be empty, the oil bees have the chance to smell these flowers and say, hey, there's one, you know, I smell diacetyl, it's probably got oil, I'm gonna land and my, I'm gonna invest my handling time and I'm gonna get this reward. Similarly, there are bees that collect resins, diterpene and triterpene resins from flowers like clusias. You know, female orchid bees do this in the New World tropics. And they use them for their nests. They, they build <laughs> water, waterproof antimicrobial nests out of these wonderful resins. That's so cool. And, and the resins biosynthetically are terpenes. They're, they themselves are not volatile, but they are pleiotropically related to, you know, they're, in this, they're loosely in the same biosynthetic pathway as, uh, as sesquiterpenes and monoterpenes. And so and there are some cases where if you're going to make the resin, you kind of have to make the volatile terpenes too. Oh. And, right. And so bees might be using that as a way to, uh, you know, save time and as an honest indicator. Oh, OK. If I'm finding resin flowers from a distance, I can fly up wind to this odor plume of, of sesquiterpenes. And then when I land, I'm going to get the resins that I want. And then I can learn later that those flowers are always pink. And I can, you know, maybe I can do without the odor at that point. Wow. Um, yeah, isn't that neat? That's, that, you just blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'd like to think of the continuum of plant pollinator interactions as this really broad spectrum where yeah. on one end, on one end are the flower, are the floral Coca-Cola bottles. Okay. Things that are just yellow, blue, or, or, or pink. And that can be scented with the same 25 odors, you know, the greatest hits, Beatles greatest hits. <laughs> And, and who knows why those are the common ones? Maybe they're the most stable under atmospheric conditions. Maybe they're the easiest for insect nervous systems to learn. Hmm. Maybe they trigger some kind of innate, deep phylogenetic, you know, sensory bias that all bees or all beetles like, you know, certain kinds of aromatic alcohols or something. You know, we, we, we discovered one interesting scenario. I was working with Candy, Candace Galen from the University of Missouri, who was one of my heroes, when I was a grad student. And she was studying these sky pilot flowers in Colorado up at the a timberline between the Krumholtz and the and the Alpine tundra, and they smell really strongly and strangely. You know, she described them to me as being unique and perfumey, but a little bit off. And I I kind of described them as a fruit beer. You know, they're, <laughs> they're kind of like grape juice with an India Pale Ale under it. Yeah. And, you know, when we did the analyses, we chemically we found that there are these hoppy compounds that are present in the trichomes of the plant. The plants are really stinky and skunky, but then the flowers themselves are like hyacinths. You know, they're really grapey sweet. And the compounds that we found were not unusual. They were all, you know, from like two amino acid derived pathways, tryptophan and, and, and phenylalanine. But what, they, what was really interesting to me is that the major volatiles were, they were polar, they're, they're water soluble. So, so 2-phenylethanol, for example, is a very polar 
molecule that 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 dissolves naturally in, in nectar. Whoa! And so when when we did our chemical analyses, we were thinking about scent and attraction from a distance. But as the data rolled off the chromatograph, we realized, oh my God, this could be a flavor. You know, huh. what if, what if it's perfusing the nectar in the flowers at these high concentrations? And what 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 might that mean? It was such a pleasure to go back for three summers to Colorado with with uh, with Candy and her students and with you know my student at the time, Rainy Kazarowski, and to manipulate these flowers and say we're not just. They had this really strange distribution where a lot of the flowers were really weak scented, but some of them were really powerful, and we didn't we didn't know why. And what we learned was really stunning. There's this trade-off between flower morphology, kind of how wide the flower flare is, you know, how wide a, a bell mm-hmm. they are, and how strongly they smelled. And so, so what, what Candy and her prior students had shown previously is that a really wide-open flower is great for bumblebees because they can fit into it and they contact the sex organs and they get the nectar and they're happy. Uh, and, and, and the queen bumblebees are the best pollinators of these things above um, timberline. But those flowers are really vulnerable to being attacked by these formica ants that snip the, the female parts. They, they cut the style off so they can drink the nectar. So they essentially are female neutering the flowers. Whoa. They can only out pollen, but they can't, be, they can't make seeds. So this is a major fitness loss. And Candy had shown previously that the flowers with narrow corolla flares that were more, more shaped like a narrow uh, nectar tube, they physically excluded the ants. The ants couldn't get into them. Awesome. Um, so what we found was this crazy anti-correlation where the flowers that had the widest flare also had the strongest emissions of 2-phenylethanol. And the ones that had the narrowest flare had the weakest emissions of 2-phenylethanol. And when we did bioassays, we realized that these high concentrations of 2-phenylethanol in the nectar are actually lethal to the ants. What? Yeah. So even though they smell sweet to us and and tasty, and and you know I can list off twenty foods that have two phenylethanol in them that wouldn't bother you at all. At the size of these ants and at the concentration of these odors, they were dead in a half hour. Wow. Um, so we think that the plants are protecting themselves either by having narrow tubes or if they have wide tubes and they're going for the better bumblebee pollination, they're protecting themselves with these off-putting odors that keep the ants out. And huh. this this was, again, very satisfying study for us. We didn't believe the data at first. <laughs> uh, again, we did double blind and uncoded them. And, you know, we didn't have the people who collected the data, analyzed the data. But what was very satisfying is that, that again, the pollinators themselves aren't necessarily the only or the strongest selective force on floral evolution, whether it's color, shape or odor. It's the flower enemies as well that were, that are driving this situation. Yeah, that is just that's mind blowing. I, I can't. It's just, it's so fascinating that you can have assumptions about a system and then walk into that system with these notions and then find something completely different. Yeah. Well, here's here's another revolution. So I mentioned sort of Wasser and Price and Ullerton. And by 1996, there was this sort of formative paper on floral generalization versus specialization. Around the same time, Sharon Strauss and Scott Armbruster wrote, you know, had this sort of chaired this symposium and, and wrote this paper about whether flat, whether plant enemies or flower predators and herbivores are actually more important selective forces on floral evolution than we thought. And they each came from their own research programs in which that evidence had kind of accumulated over time. But their paper was a bombshell because people, you know, I know I immediately reacted saying, well, how could that be, right? And pollinators are strong co-evolutionary selective forces, aren't they? And, and so the polymonium study that I just mentioned was wonderful for us because we saw it with our own, with our own data and our own system. And you know, again, I was a guest in that project, but I, I, I felt, you know, wow, this is what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, this is probably more common. And that leads to my present project, which it isn't all published yet, but it's really exciting. Um, so, you know, that evening primroses are, are you know, pretty diverse in North America. You know, we've got over 100 species of them in the Americas. But Western North America has, you know, several tens of species. Yeah, several, yeah a right? bewildering array of Inothera. Yeah, no, and and, they, and I have always loved them since I was a grad student and, and living out west, enjoying that every sand dune has, you know, has its own <laughs> essentially. And so I've been working with evening primroses for a long time. And they, they smell great. They're, they're hawk moth pollinated. There's a lot of, you know, cool things to learn from them. But I started working about 10 years ago. I, I got interested in natural variation in evening primrose. Uh, Here's where it started. We had a grant, my very first grant with Lucinda McDade and uh, Rachel Levin. And what we wanted to do was phylogenetically map flower scent in three different lineages that are pollinated by hawk moths. 
Okay, so this is going to be tobaccos, evening primroses, and four o'clocks. Okay. So you, right, you can appreciate those are three different suborders of, of angiosperms. They're not closely related. They, they make flower nectar tubes in very different ways. So they're, they're not close relatives to each other. And right. we, we thought this is, this is going to be great. So when, when something smells sweet to you, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> what, what does the chemistry mean? I started to do this project and I realized that something that John Thompson had been writing about for a long time, that there's this geographic mosaic out there of plant interactions with their enemies and their friends. And every population of evening primroses that I visited in Utah and Arizona and Idaho smelled different to me. Even though they were the same species complex, this is the tufted evening, evening primrose, Enothera cespitosa. And I was flummoxed by this. I, I collected a lot of seeds. I collected a lot of samples. I wrote back to Tucson and I said to Lucinda, you know, we've got a problem <laughs> because, <laughs> because these things are not species level traits. Okay. We're looking at chemistry that's varying with soil type and pH and, and the, the flower wow. morphology is really different. So it took me a long time to digest all this. We did a lot of field work and we learned over the years that there, there are different hawk moths that pollinate these flowers, but some of them lay eggs on the plant and their caterpillars eat them. Uh -oh. um, and some of them don't, but they're not as common. So there's a kind of tug of war going on. We also found these little tiny moths called mamfa that they're they're like yucca moths without the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> Just all the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they trash the flower buds. They eat the seeds. They don't pollinate anything. They're little tiny guys, you know, and gals. They they show up at the flower at dusk. They run around in circles. They mate. <laughs> um, so they there can be breakouts. There can be populations where they do a lot of damage. And then there are these these bees, these these sweat bees, and the you know, huge genus Lazioglossum that fly at dusk and dawn, and that can't possibly pollinate the flowers because they only visit one flower at a time, and they're tiny. But what they do is they get into the flowers as they're opening. They strip out the pollen hmm. and go back to their little nest holes in the ground and provision a wad of pollen and lay an egg on it and do it again. And sometimes if they are really abundant, by the time the hawk moths get around to visiting the flowers, the, there's no pollen left. Oh, wow. And so they can be perfectly good pollinators and not move any pollen because the bees already took it. Hmm. And so it took me about three or four seasons of staring at this. <laughs> And watching all the what, what John Thompson calls the mismatches, you know, where the, the flowers are opening at 1030 at night instead of uh, sunset. And we saw like hawk moths hovering over buds like, come on, guys, open up so we can drink. And it didn't happen. Right. And yet those plants were setting 100 percent fruit and they can't oh, self-pollinate. You know, so so my postdoc at the time was, was Derek Arts. And, and we were at the camp with our undergrads and said, hey, you know, we got to get up at dawn. We must be missing something. And sure enough, there's this beautiful silver anthophora bee up before sunrise because it can thermoregulate itself, right? It can it can shiver its wing muscles and raise its own body okay. temperature cold. And it's the perfect pollinator. Like <laughs> the flowers had accumulated nectar all night so the bee could reach it. The bee would land on the stigma as a steering wheel to stabilize itself and get pollen all over the place. It was perfect and had no costs. And oh. and so that's what happens in Moab. It's not what happens in Jackson Hole. What? No. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. But, it, but in Jackson Hole, there are these sphinx moths that, whose larvae eat wild cherry leaves and don't harm the evening primrose leaves at all. And so they're just completely welcome, wonderful pollinators. So I kind of left the phylogenetic mapping part for 15 years, because I, at least with this system, because I really wanted to understand at the population level what was happening. So we got a, an amazing grant from NSF called the Dimensions of Biodiversity. And it was a big team of collaborators from the uh, Smithsonian and from the Chicago Botanic Garden. We were working with Warren Wagner, who worked with Peter Raven and Peter Hoke, and, and who's kind of one of the Zen master of, of evening primrose, <laughs> you know, uh, systematics. And I had trained Chris Escogan, who was a, a, oh, yeah. a, genet a, a conservation geneticist from, from Yukon. You know, but she, but she grew up in the prairie in, in, in North Dakota, and she'd wanted very badly to work on on prairie conservation issues, and and asked me after working in, with us in Moab, is, is there a an evening primrose that's rare or endangered? And I and I said, yeah, absolutely, Enothera harringtonii in in eastern Colorado, from Colorado Springs and Pueblo out into La Junta on the prairie. That's a plant that there's only like 30 or 40 populations of them. And, uh, and we had a friend named Tass Kelso, who is a professor at Colorado College and, and you know, tragically passed away last year. And Tass had worked for years on these plants, knew, knew where they were. And so she introduced Krissa and her colleague, Jeremy Fent, and their students to these plants. And we just started collecting scent 
from all the populations we could, uh, along with population genetics data. That's something really extraordinary that we could smell in the field, but we wanted to know. <laughs> right? That as you go from Colorado Springs in the sort of northwest limits of the distribution of this species, down towards Trinidad, you know, toward, toward the New Mexico border and out, out toward La Junta, there's a lot of gene flow. The hawk moths are visiting and pollinating all of those plants. There's not a lot of genetic structuring, so it's not there's not a lot of evidence for genetic drift across the distribution of these of these plants. But there's a really important floral scent compound called linalol that smells like Earl Grey tea hmm. or Fruit Loops. That is, you can smell it. I mean, you know it when you smell it. It's really distinctive in night blooming flowers, and around Pueblo and Colorado Springs, this is what these flowers smell like. And many many evening primroses make linalol. But what was fascinating is is out beyond Walsenburg and towards Trinidad and, and La Junta, the linalol's gone. Weird. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just gone. And, and it, so it wasn't genetic drift, and it's not different pollinators. So we working with, with Tanya Yogesh, uh, who's the lead postdoc on this project, putting together these teams of, of wonderful students from, from Chicago, spending weeks and weeks in the field. We did all these different kinds of experiments where we added linalol to flowers that didn't have it and asked, huh. what happened? Do you get more pollinators? Do you get, you know, more seed set? Do you get more herbivory? Do you get more third trophic level predators? Whatever. And then we went to, po to, to populations where linalol was variable, and uh, we could do a phenotypic selection analysis where, where we measured which plants had linalol and how much, and we could regress that statistically against seed production. And so we have all these different, as I said, this is not published yet, but we have all these different alternative hypotheses that we've addressed. And really, the one that comes out the highest is uh, the little monfa guys. Oh. The, the little sea predators seem to huh. be driving this. And we're not sure why yet, you know, why the geographic very, you know, why, why yeah. the, the geographic mosaic. But it's not about pollinators. And so that's really fascinating. That's you know, amazing. And, and so I, I think for me, there's this arc through my my career and <laughs> elaborative studies with with these wonderful colleagues that I've, you know, named for you, where we've learned a lot from each other, and we've and we've and we've gone to meetings where people have kind of challenged, you know, the prevailing paradigms and said, well, what if enemies are driving this, or yeah. what if it's more likely that that's true in places that are young ecologically, that are post glacial, and that haven't had a lot of time for for more coevolution and and, and specialization. I've worked a lot with uh, with Steve Johnson in South Africa, who's an amazing, amazing botanist and a, and a great friend. And you know, Steve works in one of the oldest biomes in the world. You know, he works in the Feinbos and he works in the Drakensberg, and uh, there's an awful lot of specialization, like yeah. legitimate, real specialization in that flora. And you know, Steve's work has been all about why are there filters? Are there chemical filters, mechanical filters? You know, why don't more species of anything visit proteas or visit the orchids that he studies or visit the, the gladiolas that he studies. And so, you know, I, I feel I feel fortunate. I, I travel a little bit in the last few years. All botanists want to go <laughs> like, you know, South Africa, yeah. the Andes, Western Australia, you know, southern China, Madagascar, places like that. And, and I the Mediterranean. I'm, I'm fortunate I was in Yunnan, China last year no. after a conference. And I'm, so I'm trying to hit my bucket list. Uh, <laughs> Because there's always something new to learn sure. from, from being around terrific botany and, and terrific botanists. Yeah, and I like this idea of kind of challenging these common held assumptions that pollination is just, or flowers are all purely about pollination or sex, or at least the, the main drivers of their evolution is all about sex and attracting pollinators. But I mean, just from what it sounds like you've, you're, you're kind of coming at here with this research is that Sure, you know, fitness is directly related to reproductive effort and, and having fewer pollinators is a bad thing, but having something come and eat or destroy all attempts at pollination is, is probably way worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so then, there, then there's the part that's where the turnabout is fair play. You know, my students and I are, are also working on dishonest flowers, you know, flowers that pretend to be rotting fruits or, mm. or feces or carrion. And, you know, we want to understand how they make those odors and how, how they attract, the, you, know, the, you know, those are dishonest index cues, if you will. Yeah. Right. So they're not quite unfakeable, but rotting feces or carrion because of the microbes that are, that are, you know, metabolizing those materials are making certain kinds of odors and heat and carbon dioxide. And, you know, and flowers do those things too. And, and so I got to be a part of a, a truly remarkable study with a student named Tobias Palicha. From the University of Oregon, and his advisor, Biddy Roy, who's an old friend of mine, we had worked on rust fungus together 
when we were both finishing our graduate and postdoctoral studies in Colorado. And there was another person in that study who was really incredible. Her name was Melinda Barnadas. Melinda is a um, is an artist. She's a materials artist. And Tobias's thesis was to study Dracula orchids. So these are, have you seen them? Yes, they're remarkable. Yeah, they, so they're amazing. There's like a hundred species of them. There, it's this Andean lineage that, that that is, as far as I can tell, is nested within Masdevalia, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and for your listeners, the the lip of the orchid looks like and smells like a mushroom cap with gills. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, spitting image. It's sick. I mean, it's, so so Roman Kaiser, you know, one of my heroes, and, and Stefan Vogel, who you know, the father of the study of the, the study of flower scent, had described Dracula orchids as, as part of a kind of fungal mimicry syndrome. And Roman Kaiser had been the first chemist to to uh, verify that they smell like they smell like mushrooms because they do because because they're making these eight carbon alcohols and ketones. Uh, that make mushrooms hmm. smell the way they do, and so Tobias and Biddy realized, you know, that we can't we can't do gene silencing on these plants. We'd like to do a kind of Nico Tinbergen type study where you independently manipulate color and pattern and shape and odor, and this is something that Biddy and I had done successfully with her rust fungi, you know, back in the mid '90s, and which was so satisfying to put out these yellow cardboard squares. <laughs> And to dose them with the fungal odors and to see bees and flies up in the high, you know, alpine come at them. But these Dracula flowers are very dimensional. You can't make a paper model that would fool anybody. And you can't do RNAi or gene silencing to, to turn off those traits. Right. At, least not, at least not yet, right? Right. You don't have 15 years to grow one up and <laughs> get it to flower. No. So, so they came up with a, a brilliant, I, and, I, and I claim no, no credit for this one, they came up with a brilliant solution. They enlisted Melinda and came up together with an idea that they would CT scan the flower, you know, high resolution scan of the flower in three dimensions, and then 3D print uh, the photographic negative of that, if you will, as a mold. That's incredible. So instead of 3D printing these brittle styrene flowers, they 3D printed the mold and then cast the flower parts in in, in surgical silicone. Uh. So this is the this is the brilliance of this study. You know, <laughs> Melinda Melinda did an incredible job with this. And if you've read this paper, what we were able to do, and, and largely through Biddy and Tobias and 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 their colleagues and teammates in, in Los Cedros in, in in Ecuador, was to put these things out in the cloud forest and ask the fruit flies, or or really more accurately, fungus flies, right, that that, that pollinate these things. They really do mistake them for mushrooms. They land on them. They dance. You know, they do their. They do these courtship displays. They palpitate the surface, so they're kind of, you know, eating yeasts and things on the surface of the mushrooms as well as the flowers, and they mate on the flowers. So, so the whole the way these flowers work is that they 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 persuade the fungus flies that that they're another mushroom. And so the study basically what they what my colleagues were able to show was that there's a combination of odors and and textures that that's really necessary or the extract of the labellum pipetted onto, you know, a silicone labellum is necessary to attract the flies. Wow. Uh, yet we also, you know, videotaped the flies as they visited the flowers and looked at the videos and were able to make an ethogram kind of a kinematic diagram of what do they do when they land. Yeah. And for me, this was the most satisfying thing, that not only did they use artificial flowers and real flowers with and without extracts, but they also made these chimeric flowers where they had a real labellum with an artificial calyx. Huh. Or a real calyx with an artificial labellum. Cool. So, and then could ask, well, okay, if, you, if you've got the real calyx, but the labellum is silicone and it doesn't smell like a mushroom, what happens then? And what happened then was the flies landed on the on the on the flower and ran around, but like only a third of them would land. Whereas if it had a real labellum and an artificial calyx, more of them would land. But if they didn't land on the labellum, they never got there. Right. So there was something about the real calyx and its surface chemistry and its color pattern or whatever that uh, was not replicated by a silicone dummy. Huh. And so you know, for those flowers, it's not good enough to attract a fly. The fly has to land on the flower and it has to walk to the column. And so this is a beautiful example of experimental confirmation that the flowers need to be integrated phenotypes, that you need the odor mimicry, but you also need the sort of legitimate surface chemistry and texture of the calyx, that that if you only have the labellum looking like a mushroom, it's not good enough. Because if they don't land on that, they're never going to get there. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that great? Um, Just when I thought it was okay to not be surprised by things you can do with 3D printing. There you go. <laughs> huh. 
Yeah. So we're, you know, and then those, those things don't happen in a vacuum, you know, sure. for Tobias, is, for Tobias is a big part of his life. You know, for Melinda, it was a big splash that she made in a new, in, in a new literature, in a new world. You know, for Biddy, it was a, one of the culminations of a, of a wonderful long career of studying fungal flower interactions, you know, fungi that pretend to be flowers, yeah. flowers that pretend to be fungi. There's a, there's a kind of closure and symmetry there, <laughs> you know, for her. But also, you know, they worked in a precious place. They worked in, in, in the cloud forest in Ecuador, you know, in a place that's really vulnerable to mining accessions and to um, clear cutting and to loss. You know, there's, there's no way to, to fully describe the biodiversity of the Andes from, you know, from Venezuela all the way to to uh, northern Chile are, are hyper, hyper diverse. And um, so uh, there's there's a bittersweet component to that, that, that we don't know if the places where, you know, where the work was done you know, can, can be preserved right. for future generations of Ecuadorians and for, you know, and for all people. So, it, you know, that's not a new story. And, and, and there's, there's a conservation component to, you know, to everything that we do if we want to to, you know, to open our eyes and be aware of it. Um, yeah. But I think in, in this case, you know, it's just one snapshot of a hyper diverse world that's connected, you know, through all of these, um, you know, food webs. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it really underscores this idea that single species conservation needs to have this holistic approach of, you know, if you didn't have that component or, or, or you're missing a certain component, you, you kind of see this whole thing could crumble. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, just in the way that these lavender and cystus flowers in the Mediterranean were feeding this whole bee community, you know, here you can't have Dracula orchids if you don't have mushrooms. Yeah. Right? And yeah. you don't have mushrooms if you don't have the conditions in which wood can rot slowly and, you know, temperatures aren't too extreme and they don't dry out, et cetera. So, you know, as an ecologist, you know, you see those things, but but sometimes – you know, when we focus in, when we bore in on, on mechanism, we forget right. about those larger contextual issues. So I think what I've been able to describe for you is that there's a lot of different kinds of, of interactions out there where flower chemistry plays a part. You know, mm-hmm. it, it might coordinate with flower shapes and colors. It might coordinate with um, who the enemies of the plant are versus who the friends are. It might get into the nectar and become a flavor instead of just an odor. Something we haven't even talked about because I don't do much work on it is sexual deception. You know, mm. some of the best studies in our field are independent studies in in, in Europe and in Australia of, of sexual deception. Um, orchids that are you know, rapidly tracking and mimicking the sexual pheromones and displays of wasps and bees and beetles and and other kinds of and flies, other kinds of insects around the world, and and they're doing so in in, in extraordinary ways, where it's uh, very difficult for the for a male insect competing for mates yeah. to to not be compelled to land on and try to copulate with a flower like that. <laughs> Queuing in on one of the uh, most important things in any animal's life. Right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Agusa, this has been fascinating, and I hope this isn't the only time we hear you on this podcast. You are welcome back anytime. But in the meantime. If people want to find out more about your work and keep up to date and all the fascinating stuff coming out of your lab, how do you recommend they do it? Uh, well, my website is out there. <laughs> <laughs> I am often contacted by the media to talk about pollination and chemical ecology. I love hearing from students and, and, and the lay public. We do an awful lot of outreach, not only here at Cornell, but but out on the road. Um, we were fortunate to work in um, national parks, you know, Arches and Grand Teton, and one of the um, agreements I made with the rangers there is that I, you know, is that we would be happy to to talk to, you know, visitors and guests nice. to the park and, and maybe en- enrich their experiences there. Uh, there's also, you know, a lot of good websites out there. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's any um, sort of non-professor websites that people have. <laughs> I mean, you you do a great service oh, to your thank you to your to your listeners. I, I love your, I love your show. It's an honor to be on it. Oh, I appreciate um, that. But I think there's a powerful groundswell of awareness uh, across the world, not just in the United States right now about pollinators and their plight, about the ecosystem services that they provide, um, about the importance of wild pollinators in the face of an uncertain future for managed agricultural pollinators like honeybees. And so I, I think that the people who are really concerned and interested in those things, there's a lot of websites out there. There's there's a lot of uh, local conferences and meetings where people talk about pollinator health. You know, I, I think that the, for if I were a young student, you know, I, I might be more more inclined to throw my lot in with, with that kind of work, yeah. you know, given, given how important it is for food safety and for sustainability, as well as biodiversity. I, th- I think 
you know, I had a, I had a student here at Cornell named Mia Park, who, who, whose thesis was all about how can wild bees compensate for or, or, or supplement, you know, honeybees and, and bumblebees as pollinators of apple, you know, here in New York state. And so it was, it was a joy to be on her committee and she did some really beautiful work. And since then, a lot of her classmates and colleagues have gotten very interested in, well, how do you manage for borders? You know, how do you, how do you manage for wild bees? And so uh, that's just happening here. There's a lot of great stuff going on at Penn State and Michigan State and Rutgers, um, UC Davis, et cetera. It's, it's a very, very rapidly growing field. <laughs> Well, that's exciting. I mean, it's, it's so good to know that there are, you know, whether you hear about it in popular media or not, there's people behind the scenes working all the time. We just got to get them into the limelight. So, yeah, well, and I'm happy to say that there's also more funding for it. You know, <laughs> U.S. U.S. Department of Agriculture and, and NIFA are funding more work on, 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 on pollinator health and, and pollinator services. And so, you know, again, for young students, this is, a, this is an area of growth. It's not an old fusty field. You know, <laughs> I, I, I got into the game at a time when I was really, really interested in describing, you know, new frontiers and in being a pioneer. And I enjoyed that. You know, it was hard at times because, you know, the burden of proof is on sci- is on scientists to persuade that the status quo isn't good enough. Yeah. Um, so if you've got a new hypothesis or a new theory or a new set of ideas, you know, you have to do a good job persuading people with evidence and not just with, you know, your, your voice. And so I, I really enjoyed that. I, I, I've had a great experience as a scientist and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I think, you know, the, the world's changing fast. And, and nowadays people getting into pollination have these very urgent issues to address, uh, not only for, for sustainability and for agriculture, as well as for biodiversity and, and, and it's protection. Yeah, no, that's a good point. But, uh, again, I thank you for taking the time to inspire, hopefully, uh, uh, uh at least a few sci- potential scientists here or potential researchers into pursuing these fields. This has been Great. Thank you. Thanks very much, Matt. Yes. Cheers. All right. Phenomenal stuff. As always, I thank Dr. Ragusa for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us back in 2018. And as always, I'll put all of the relevant links in the show notes. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com. There, you will also find all of the different ways you can help support this show. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. I also have a book for sale, as well as some stickers. There's also a link there where you can check out our Patreon. For a tiny financial contribution each month, you get a bunch of great kickbacks, including access to bonus episodes. And of course, support really makes this show possible. And it's not just making sure I can interview people week in and week out. It's ensuring that I can get the best gear to make it sound better for you. If you notice the difference between recent episodes and the one you just listened to, it's because people supported the show and I was able to purchase better recording equipment. So of course, thank you to everyone that's kicked in. I couldn't be doing this without you. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.